So if you would, I would like to ask you to go to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, verse 8. Genesis chapter 2, verse 8. When you're there, say amen for me. If you're having a hard time finding it, come talk to me after church. I'm going to show you something. Amen. Genesis chapter 2, verses 8. It says, Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden. And there he put the man he had formed. And the Lord God made all kinds of trees, all kinds of trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Picture all of this with me. Let's make a mental picture of what we're reading here. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden, and from there it separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is the Pishon. It winds through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx are also found there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It winds through the entire land of Cush, and the name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs along the east side of Ashur, and the fourth river is the Euphrates. Now listen to this next part. This is important. The Lord God took the man. He took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden. It was no accident we sang that song this morning. We're going to go somewhere, if you'll follow me. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. God created this immaculate garden of paradise, and he took his most beloved, his most favorite creation, and he placed him there to work the garden. Now jump with me. We're going to go to two more places in Scripture. Go over to chapter 3, verses 8. Chapter 3, verse 8 of Genesis. And by this time, uh, Adam has now got Eve, and they have fallen into sin. And they are hiding in the garden because of shame. It says in verse 8 of chapter 3 in Genesis, Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? I believe God is calling the church today and asking, Where are you? Run over with me to the book of Matthew. We're going to go into the New Testament now. The book of Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26, verse 36. We just read of the Garden of Eden, and now what we're going to read is in the Garden of Gethsemane. Matthew 26, 36. It says, Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to them, Sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful. 
and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Could you men not keep watch with me for one hour, he asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, My father, if it's not possible for this cup to be taken away from me, unless I drink it, may your will be done. Somebody say, may his will be done. When he came back and he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy, uh, so he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. Then he returned to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour is near, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Why don't we pray to the Lord this morning? Father, we come before you in this house in the mighty, matchless name of Jesus. Church, why don't you lift your voice right now? Lord, we come before you with such humility. God, I ask that this service would not be like anything we've experienced before, but Lord, that your Holy Spirit would touch us in a new and a fresh way. Somebody in this house, just raise your hands and say, Lord, I'm ready to receive the seeds you're ready to plant. Hallelujah. Father, we pray that your anointing would just be dripping off of me and every single listener in this building. We give you glory and we give you praise in advance because you are God and you are good. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 You may be wondering what on earth those two passages of Scripture have to do with one another. You're probably sitting there thinking, Preacher, what on earth are you going to be talking about today? But what I want to do is I want to suggest to you this morning that there is a distinct similarity between Eden and Gethsemane. A distinct similarity between Eden and Gethsemane. You see, Eden and Gethsemane were gardens, correct? I think we all know that. They were gardens. They were sites of fruitfulness. They were a, a place where a harvest was yielded. They produced something. There was life. There was growth. They were sites of fruitfulness. And not only were they sites of fruitfulness, but these two gardens were also where humanity found a meeting place with God. In Eden, Adam and Eve had a meeting place with God. In Gethsemane, Jesus, many times, had a meeting place with God. You see, these two gardens were hubs for supernatural connection. They were 
They were destinations for divine interaction. These two places were like a Mecca for godly communication. And this morning what I've I've done is I'm going to preach to you a sermon uh, on the subject of grow yourself a garden. Grow yourself a garden. Can you just say with me, grow yourself a garden. How about we smile when we say it? Let's say, I'm going to grow myself a garden. I'm going to grow myself a garden. Let's get some joy about it, okay? This is a church, all right? This ain't a funeral. You see, in the Old Testament with Eden, what we're shown is the original design for our existence. We are shown the original blueprint, which is to be in regular and open and unhindered and uninhibited communication with God. Correct? Correct and correct. That really worked out. But that's right, isn't it? The original design was for there to be an open, free-flowing dialogue between man and his creation, or between the creator and man, correct? Where we didn't have to hold anything back. It was a place where heaven could meet with earth in the most beautiful way possible, not to be hindered by anything. Amen. In the New Testament with Gethsemane, what we're shown is a similar picture. Not exactly the same picture, but a similar picture that we may freely come before the throne of grace and behold our King in all of His infinite mercy. And, and, and before that King, we can share our struggles, our griefs, our worries, our woes. We can be honest about our discouragement. Amen? Has anybody ever been a little discouraged? Duh. And you needed to go talk to somebody, but there wasn't anybody who could give you the help you needed until you went to a garden. Somebody say, I need to grow a garden. You see, the intent of our Creator has always been to walk alongside us through the various sundries that we face. His intent has never once been to be some sort of unreachable and mystical force that is separated from our practical day-to-day lives. No, rather, he, his intent was to walk with us like he did with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. In other words, God's original intent was to be an engaged witness of our monotonous and our casual, as well as our extreme and our exaggeration. Amen. His design is to be a present father, interested and active in abolishing, praise God, the debts of our past, loving us endlessly in our future, and guiding us into hope. Correct? And not only, let me tell you something. Let me tell you something. Not only is he going to walk with us in the cool of the day like he did with Adam and Eve, but he's going to walk with you in the morning when you don't have enough strength to face another day. He's going to walk with you in the afternoon when the sun is beating down on your back and scorching you dry. He's going to walk with you in the evening and bring a cool breeze of peace that passes all understanding. And he's going to hold your hand through the night when it's hard to rest. He's going to be there warding off the wolves in the night when there's pain. And he's going to be there to celebrate your victory in the morning whenever you 
make it through. If you've been burned and you need a shade this morning, he said, whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High will be under the shadow of the Almighty. If you've been caught in a snare of the devil this morning, he said he'll save you and he will cover you with his feathers and under his wings you will find a refuge. If you've been attacked, if the devil's been ransacking your home, if you feel like he slapped you right in the face, his faithfulness will be your shield and your rampart. I'm preaching better than you're responding this morning. If you've been scared and you've been fearful, he, you will not fear the terror of the night nor the arrow that flies by day. If you see thousands falling at your left and at your right, don't worry. Hold on, because it's not going to touch you. You will only observe with your eyes. Somebody needs to read Psalm 91, the punishment of the wicked. Here's the point. If you make the most high your dwelling, if you grow yourself a garden, if you grow, somebody say, a garden, then no disaster is going to come near your tent. Why? It's because you made a meeting place with the Father. You've cultivated a life that produces fruit. You've been sure to tend to where he's placed you. In the word it says he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. You know what they're going to do? They're going to lift you up so your foot doesn't get hit by a stone. You're not going to get struck by a stone. You're going to tread upon the lion and the cobra. You're going to trample the great serpent and the lion. And it's because he loves me, I will rescue him, says the Lord. Amen. I'm going to protect him because you acknowledge his name. That's your insurance policy. See, he's going to be with you in trouble. He's going to deliver you in the fight. He's going to honor you in your faithfulness. And when long life, he's going to satisfy you and show you his salvation. Somebody say, I'm going to grow a garden. I'm going to grow a garden. See, there's a, a, a dire need, a dire need in the 21st century American church to once again take upon themselves a lifestyle of inviting God to inhabit their life. You know, the word actually says where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. If you felt bound up, you probably haven't been inviting the spirit of the Lord to come around anytime soon. We are a church, a people that are desperate for communion. We are desperate for communion. We have suffered by sticking God in our wallet with our credit cards, insurance, emergency cash, and savings account, reserving him for only the important or big needs whenever we begin to feel that we're desperate. We become so independent that we have robbed ourselves of the peace of mind that comes when you invite the master to come and sit at the table with you. You see, there's a lot of peace that you can miss out on when you don't invite God to ride in the car with you to work. There's a lot of peace you can miss out on when you don't invite God to be with your kids at school today. There's a lot of peace of mind that you can miss out on whenever you don't mention any of his name uh, at your workplace and you and you neglect to tend to the garden that is to produce your spiritual fruit 
You see, I, I want to make it clear, he is the ever-present help in time of need, right? He is the ever-present help in time of need. He will provide you with manna from heaven when you're without. He'll be your cloud by day and your fire by night. But you have to understand he's also your Abba Father. He's there for the big things, but he's also the Father that's going to take care of you in the small things. He's your friend that sticks closer than a brother. So listen to me. You aren't to be calling him only when you need something because that way you're going to get labeled a spiritual leech trying to suck all the life out of him you can without doing anything thing to cultivate the fruit that will sustain you. Amen. Amen. You see, there's a relationship that the church is missing out on. And it's genuinely, it's crippling our potential. It is crippling our potential. It's crippling our potential individually. And it's also crippling our potential as a church whole. Do you realize that if you are a believer, you are a part of the body of Christ? And when one part of your body hurts, if you bung up your elbow, guess what? Your whole body has to cater to that elbow. We're crippling our potential because we're not taking the garden seriously. We're crippling our potential because we're neglecting to sow into the harvest. That's not here yet, but that's growing and it's on the way. You see, there is so much freedom to be had by growing a garden, but someone, no one seems to reach out and receive it. It's critical to cultivate a garden, a meeting place with the Father, to sit at the table of purity where your all is laid out before Him, and He's not scared by any of it. There's some things in your life you would rather die than have other people know, but let me tell you, you can be honest when it comes to Him. It's as if, you know, this freedom that no one seems to reach out and grab a hold of. It's as if uh, some don't know any better. And I'm sure that's the case. Some people flat out don't know any better. But the bigger issue is that so many do know better, but they're too busy in what they're doing to stop and smell of that rose of Sharon, to stop and to gaze upon the lily of the valley. You see, God's design for you living a blessed life has always required his consultation. If you want a blessed life, you're not going to get there until you consult with the master. Let me explain something. He, you, you don't have to consult with him because he wants to control you. That's not the point. You have to consult with him because he wants to reveal to you plans to prosper you, plans to give you a hope, plans to give you a future, plans that are not to harm you, but plans that are going to bless you. See, he wants to show you things that you could never see yourself. Because here's the deal. I don't know if you realize it or not. He's God and you're not. He's God and you're not. But let me tell you, if you sit in the garden, if you take place to tend to the garden, if he's called you like Adam to Eden, and you still sit in the garden where he's placed you, and you take care of it like he's told you to, I'm telling you, you're going to be blown away at how beautiful and vibrant your life of stress and just scraping by can turn out to be. If there's anything that I've learned in the past year, it's that just in the most hopeless of times, God can turn anything around. Amen? Amen. Let me tell you something. You were never meant to carry the weight... This is, to be, this is to be an encouragement to you. You were never meant 
to carry the weight of your vision and your calling alone. You were never meant to do that. See, there's not a person in this house this morning that's not called to something. Everybody in this room has a calling on your life. Whether you recognize it or not, God has instilled a passion on the inside of you that he intends for you to grow in fruitfully and to see come about in your own life where you can take a part of that. He doesn't dangle stuff in front of you just to keep it away from you your whole life. See, you have a calling. Every one of you have a calling and a vision. And those callings can be heavy. How many of you have ever had the Lord put something on your heart that was heavy? How many times when God puts something on your heart is it just weighty? It's something that you, you know good and well. You can't carry that alone. I, I remember as a 12-year-old kid called to preach, never preached a minute in my life. I remember when I would be in church or around the presence of God, even in a car, I could just feel an anvil sitting on my chest. I could feel this mantle, this weight around my shoulders because I knew that there was a call on my life, but it was a very heavy thing to bear. It's not that it scares you necessarily, but it's big. The Lord wants you to know you're not supposed to bear that by yourself. It's critical to cultivate a garden It's critical to plant some seeds of faithfulness. It's critical to plant some seeds of hope. It's critical to be around people that are going to encourage you. It's critical to cut the ties that are going to weigh you down. It's critical to tend to a garden. It's critical when you see a weed popping up in your flower bed to pull it out. Are you hearing me this morning? This is not some patty cake sermon. This is more of a cry of my heart trying to call you back to your first love so that you can walk in the fruit that God's called you to. This is not some three-point outline. This is something that's very heavy on my heart because if the church would flourish on an individual level, the local level would blossom extravagantly. And you, every one of you in this room, have got a purpose You've got a calling. I don't care what lie the devil has put on you saying that you're a worthless piece of trash. That's the lie. And let me tell you, if he tells you that, you should grin because that means something sweet's coming on the way. Amen. 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 You were never left high and dry by a God who doesn't care or isn't interested. The design of God has always been to grow a garden. The design of God for your success has always been to cultivate a meeting place with him, a meeting place where you can run to hide, a meeting place where you can run to smile, a meeting place where you can run to cry, a meeting place where you can run to laugh. Listen to me. The God of the Bible, the God of the Bible desires to commune with the real you in real time and in a real way. Amen. You see, A lot of times it can feel as though your tears are the irrigation system for your garden. But I would suggest that many times the greatest miracles will bloom right across the river of our own tears. And that right there is why you need a garden of communion, a meeting place with God, with the Holy One, to keep you when you're not stable enough to keep yourself. 
You see, we were not ever created to be individuals or loners that are, are trying to navigate a successful life or a fulfilling life by our own means of understanding and strength. That was not the design. The design was to have an Eden. The design was to meet at a Gethsemane and to get the power and the strength you need. The garden, I don't know if you know this, the garden is a, is a sanctuary of a, of a sacred space. It's a sacred space. What that song say? I go to the garden alone. No one else is allowed in your garden. What did Jesus do? He separated from his disciples. There was no one else in Eden. It's a sacred space. And the, and the word intimacy with God, intimacy when it relates to God in the garden, that is the biggest understatement of your life. You see, honesty and his understanding of what you mean, even when you don't know what to say, is boundless. How many times have we gone before God with just something heavy on our heart? We don't have a clue how to speak it, but we know how we feel. Let me tell you something. He knows what you mean when you don't know what to say. That's a promise right there. You see... He hears the cry of your heart when you can't utter the words to speak. And he sees you when you've crawled under a bush to hide from shame and sorrow just like Adam and Eve did. He sees you where you're at. In Genesis, Adam and Eve, we just, we just read this uh, in our Bibles. Get the picture. Adam and Eve were in the garden facing shame from their sin. In Matthew, Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane. He was facing agonizing dread. In Luke, it says he was literally sweating bullets of blood. Sweating bullets of blood because of the cup he would soon have to take. If you're asking yourself this morning, preacher, what are you getting at? I'll tell you what I'm getting at. I'm trying to tell you this morning that both, <laughs> they were both, Eve and Jesus and Adam, they, they were both of those gardens they were facing their own fight. They were facing individual fights on an individual, on a personalized level. And let me tell you, it doesn't matter what state you're at. It doesn't matter what fight you're looking at. It doesn't matter what grief you're bearing. It doesn't matter what burden is on your chest. It doesn't matter what hopeless circumstance seems to be in front of you. I don't care how much death looks like it's knocking at your front door, but hear me. If you're joyful or in sorrow, if you're in freedom or you're in sin, there's a place at the Garden of Meeting for you. It's time to start planting some seeds. You need to find God in the garden. And the part we don't like is when we have to let him prune uh, the dead stuff off of us. All the dead leaves, the dead branches. We've got to let him water you. We've got to let them water us with mercy and to shower us with grace and to let the sun shine peace down upon us. And then, I'm telling you, you'll produce a fruit. You see, you may have thought you were like that barren fig tree of the New Testament. Hopelessness is a certainty in our life. But let me tell you, some of you have sat in it a long time and you've convinced yourself that you are the barren fig tree of the New Testament not able to produce anything for the Father that would be worth him picking off one of your branches. 
But let me tell you something. If you'll quit trying out of your own strength to yield a harvest, and if you'll get to work in a garden meeting with God regularly, daily, multiple times a day, and if you take care of where God has placed you, Just like Adam did, let me tell you, he's going to take your empty hands and he's going to fill them. He's going to take that barren womb and he's going to give you a child. He's going to take your few fish and your five loaves and he's going to multiply it. He's going to take your stuttering speech and put you before kings. He's going to take your tattered garment and give you a new robe. He's going to light up your wet sacrifice like fire from heaven. He's going to fill your empty jar with fresh oil. He's going to send you to a parted sea just to beat the onslaught of the enemy. He's going to send you to an upper room to endue you with power. And he's going to show your doubting mind two nail-pierced hands to show you the victory that is of your future. If he can do that, don't worry about what he's going to do with you. Amen? See, there's no filter necessary at the garden. Absolutely no filter. Everything we see today has got a filter on it. Everybody posts stuff with a filter. Everybody loves pictures with a filter. People use a filter to hide what they don't want others to see. See, there's no filter necessary at the garden. That's completely useless when it comes to God. You see, the, the meeting place with God, what, what's important about it is that you cultivate one. It doesn't matter what you look like. It doesn't matter what your state is, genuinely, when you're really honest on the inside. That, that's not the important part. The important part is that you cultivate and you start planting seeds of faithfulness. It's that you start planting seeds of faithfulness. Somebody say, faithfulness. Faithfulness. You see, all the victory that we tout as a believer, it's going to come in due time when you plant seeds of faithfulness, when you plant seeds of hope, when you, when, when you stay on guard against the enemy and you're meeting with God regularly, regularly in the garden. You're going to have the fruit that comes that we you know, tout about as a believer, but we'll never achieve it if we don't start digging some ground and breaking some dirt right here where we're at. Does that make sense? We've got to learn to grow where we've been planted. You see, for those of you who have cultivated a meeting space with God, you can testify to the beauty of that. You can testify to the the riches that comes from, from fruit, from spiritual fruit. But I want to encourage you this morning, don't neglect it. You see, a lot of times we can get on spiritual high, and very quickly, when something else comes along our way, we can be very distracted. And we can neglect the garden that we have planted and cultivated along with God. Amen? You see, when you do neglect your garden and you decide to come back, you're going to come back to a bunch of dead leaves, gnats, and rotten fruit. Because everything you work for spiritually has been left to go away. Have you ever forgotten to water your flowers? Give it a day or two. It's going to all have wilted. Listen to me. All they need is the water of life. Don't leave the water hose sitting around the corner. Amen. Amen. When we fail to meet with God, oftentimes we find ourselves shaky and unstable, very uncertain. We begin to question things. We begin to question people. We get very indecisive. We can become fearful. We get very tormented. Whenever we remove ourselves from the voice of the master, 
Amen? We do our best to organize the construction of some monument that we've worked towards in our lives, that we've had in our minds, and by the time it looks pretty on the outside and you're ready to go take a picture in front of it and cut the ribbon, we gaze down towards the bottom of it and we start seeing cracks because it never had a foundation, because you never consulted the chief cornerstone on how to build something that would last See, there's a lot of spiritual highs we chase when we don't want to have the responsibility of a garden. Are you hearing me? I, you know, I don't know if my words are hitting your ears or hitting a brick wall that's invisible right in front of me, but I hope I'm speaking some truth to you this morning. You see, whenever you have built a monument in your life that is, I mean, it's just beautiful edifice, and then you realize, uh-oh, I missed something. What you're left with is an Ishmael substitute instead of an Isaac promise. And you're left with that because the master's hand was removed from the blueprint and you neglected your garden. We neglected the place of meeting where we would have gotten provision and inspiration and illumination and direction. You see, one of uh, mankind's greatest demises, let me give you some practical wisdom here. One of mankind's greatest demises when it comes to growth and connection with God has always been distraction. Amen? Anything to pull our eyes away from where they ought to be focused will appear when you go to meet with God. As soon as you go to try and pray, as soon as you try to open up a Bible, you're probably going to get a phone call. You're probably going to get a text. You're going to see something pop up on your computer. Someone's going to be crying in the background, and there you're left with a distraction deterring you from the garden that you were about to go tend to, right? So anything, anything to pull our eyes away. But listen, in the garden where we're to commune with God, distraction does its best to plant seeds of disillusionment, to plant weeds of discouragement that will choke the seeds of hope that are sprouting up, and they're going to be dead when you come back if you're not careful. You see, every time there's distraction, there's risk of falling in temptation, something that catches your eye. And whatever it may be, the possibility, the likelihood of you latching onto it like a fish to a worm grows. This is exactly what we see in Eden with Eve. It's exactly what we see with Eve. You see, Eve was told by God, he said, Eve, hun, all this garden you have access to, you go eat all the fruit in there you want, have a blast taking care of it. But the one, that, that one tree, don't touch it. Because as soon as you partake of that one tree, you're going to find yourself in a place you don't want to be. He said, everything else is permitted. Everything else is permitted in the garden. But don't touch the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And let me tell you this morning, it's often when we're faced with situations in circumstances similar to this, that the devil will make the forbidden look a lot sweeter and more appealing than the plethora of what is pure and available. Is that right? You see, Eve had a whole garden, but she chose to take that one piece of fruit. How much sweeter is the cookie when it's still in the jar? How much more do you want that piece of jewelry when it's sitting behind that glass? Let me tell you, how many times <laughs> when something is off limits do we just have to touch it? 
See, that serpent tempted Eve. And it talked her out of what God had told her not to do. And let me explain something about the devil. The devil's number one goal is to get you to stumble and to miss out on every opportunity that God has for you. He wants to cause as much damage as possible. He, and let me tell you, the best way he knows how to cause damage in your life is to cut you off of your lifeline. And so if you let him get enough of a foothold for him to slip a weed eater into your garden, number one, he's one, and second of all, you're left with a mess. Right? See, the likelihood, this is important because this is truth, the likelihood of you overcoming the threat of temptation is all based on how long you entertain it. It's all based on how long you entertain it. Because let me tell you something, there's always going to be a worm in one of your apples. There's always going to be a rabbit nibbling on some of your carrots. And there's always going to be some crows scratching through your corn. That's right. You can't stop the bird of temptation from flying over your head. But you can stop him from trying to build a nest. Are you all getting a picture? You see, Eve's, Eve's biggest mistake is that when a snake came and coiled up on a limb right next to her, instead of grabbing a chopping hoe or a twenty-two long rifle, she carried on a conversation. She carried on a conversation. First of all, if a snake climbs up on a limb to you, that should be a sign. Something's wrong. Or you shouldn't be there. You see, the next time a serpent of temptation comes and offers you something that looks pretty, listen to me, don't talk back to it. You go grab your snake boots, slide them on your feet, and then you go and grind that devil's head into the pavement. Amen? Don't entertain a temptation longer than you have to because as soon as you do, you're going to find yourself like Eve having partaken of something she, does, she did not need to uh, have in her life. Amen? Because then what happened? She was kicked out of the garden. And then after she was kicked out of the garden to produce fruit was a lot more laborious. Hear me. We see something similar in the Garden of Gethsemane. We see something very similar in the Garden of Gethsemane. Not in the Garden of Gethsemane uh, was it sin. It wasn't sin. But what's similar about it is that man's will, no matter what man it is, can be torn. Man's will can be torn. Man's will can not only be tempted, but it can be torn. Have you ever been torn in your life over something? Have, have you ever been... Uh, has your will ever been split in a dilemma between emotion and reality? Has your will ever been split between hope and the inevitable? We've all been torn. You see, in Gethsemane, Jesus was torn. Jesus was having a struggle. He was having a struggle. You see, the flesh and his spirit were at odds with one another. And Jesus knew the trial that was impending, he knew what was coming. He knew what was on the way, and he was deeply grieved by it. So what does Jesus do in his deep state of grief? He models exactly what we should all do in grief. He met in the garden. He met in the garden. You see, Gethsemane, let me, let me talk to you a minute. Gethsemane was a garden located on the Mount of Olives. Okay, I want you all to get a picture. Gethsemane was a garden located on the Mount of Olives, and it was perhaps 
a space owned by a follower of Jesus. Some scholars have said Nicodemus, some have said Joseph, uh, and, and they think it was a space owned by a follower of Jesus because Jesus was a regular visitor of the garden, okay? And, and this garden of Gethsemane produced olives. In fact, the word Gethsemane in the Greek means olive oil press. Olive oil press. An olive oil press is a piece of ancient machinery, okay? Come with me on this little ride, okay? We're going to go somewhere. An olive oil press is an ancient piece of machinery. And according to research, uh, during the era of Christ, oil presses were heavy slabs of stone, okay? They were heavy slabs of stone that were lowered onto olives that were collected in a basket, after they had been crushed. So there's a thing called an olive crusher that would just crush the olives into a pulp. And then you had an oil, olive oil press. And the olive oil press would take those pulp olives, stick them in a basket, and this heavy stone slab would gradually be lowered onto the basket. And gradually the slab's weight would squeeze the olive oil out of the pulp. It would squeeze that oil out of the pulp, and that way the oil could then run into a pit where it would be collected by clay jars, okay? It it would be squeezed out and then run into a pit, and then these clay jars could come by to collect the oil. Now, I need you to listen to me. Picture this. The, the, The image of Gethsemane on the slope of the Mount of Olives where Jesus went the night before his crucifixion, it provides a picture of the suffering that Jesus was going through, the suffering that Jesus was facing. You see, the weight of the sins of the world were pressed down upon him like a heavy slab of rock that was squeezed and squeezing the agony out of him his sweat like drops of blood falling to the ground flowed from him like olive oil as it was squeezed out and flowed into the pit of an olive press the agony was of such intense pressure that it was squeezed out of him and jesus said my soul is overwhelmed To the point of death. My soul is overwhelmed to the point of death. And then he said, My father, if it be possible, won't you take this cup from me? Won't you take this cup from me? If it's possible, Jesus. Or he would have been talking to the father. Father, if it's possible, won't you take this cup from my hand. You know, he asked the father that question three separate times. Three separate times. He'd, he'd pray. He'd pray, my father, take this cup from me if it's possible. And after he'd pray it, he'd get up just to see his closest companions sleeping on the job, forsaking the opportunity to pray. And then he would leave, and then he'd go back, and he'd pray it again. He'd say, my father, if it be possible, 
May this cup be taken from me. May this cup be taken from me. He showed persistence in his intercession as his flesh and his spirit were in competition. But what he finished with, church, is what's most powerful. Because what he finished with was he said, yet not as I will, but as you will. Yet not as I will, but as you will. And church, let me tell you something. When you find a meeting place with the Father, when you find a meeting place with the Father and your flesh and your spirit are at odds with one another, the fruit that you produce is not going to be berries, melons, apples, or citrus. It's going to be love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. When you're sorrowed to the point of death, what you're going to do is you're going to pray and you're going to ask God, God, I do not want this cup you're handing me. I do not want this circumstance that you're putting before me. God, take this cup from me. Take it away. I can't handle it. I'm sorrowed right now to the point of death. I can't take any more of it. Take this cup. But listen to me, after you've prayed that, you're going, because you've been to a garden, you're going to say, yet not as I will, Father, but as you will. Lord, I may not like this at all. I might kick and scream and fight and throw a fit. But at the end of the day, your will be done because producing, pressing always will produce a fruit in your life. You're going to say, Lord, your will be done. Musicians, come uh, to your places, please. You see, in Jesus' words, the spirit is willing. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. Can I tell you something? That's why you can't grow a garden without the gardener who tended to the vine that brought us the gift of salvation. That's why you won't see growth in your garden until you've grafted into the root of Jesse. That's why you won't achieve any beauty until you're planted by the rose of Sharon. That's why you're going to sit in thorns the rest of your life until you decide to stand up with the lily of the valley. You're going to have no hope until you've sat under the branch of David. My God, I wish somebody would get some victory in this house. You're going to see no peace until you lay in your garden and you gaze at the bright and the morning star. Let me tell you, not everybody's going to stay awake with you and pray when you need them to. Not everyone's going to hang in there with you through the night when you're in your agonizing dread. But listen to me. We have a gardener, and his name is Jehovah Shammah, the Lord that is there. If you need help tilling the hard soil of your heart, we've got an El Shaddai, the Almighty God. If you've got money in short supply, but you've got bills that are on the way. He is Jehovah Jireh, your provider. Let me tell you, church, if your body is racked with sickness, he's still Jehovah Rapha, your healer. If you struggle to live in purity, he is Jehovah Sekinu, your righteousness. If you feel defeated and you feel worn out and worn down and beat up, he is Jehovah Nisi, your banner of victory. Hallelujah. If you suffer in anxiety or depression, he is Jehovah Shalom, your prince of peace. Wherever you're planted, wherever you're planted, God will produce a fruit in your life. Some of you may have been raised in rocky ground. 
Some of you might come from a home of thorns. Some of you may have let too many crows to come in and steal the blessings of your life. But let me tell you this morning, God is tilling the soil of your heart. He's tilling the soil of your heart. And this morning is your perfect opportunity to plant the first seed that's going to grow a garden and produce fruit. Not just for you, but for your children and your children's children and their children. This morning as they sing, I want everybody who is willing and able to find a place in the house this morning. In these altars, maybe if you can't come up in your seat, find a place this morning to plant the first seed. Find a place this morning that's going to start springing the hope that you need. Some of us have lost so much and had so much taken away the past two years. What if we planted a garden and began to cultivate it with the Father and all that heartache, all that loss could just be covered by the canopy of His grace. This morning, I want to invite every single one of you who would to take a moment, come to the altars, And let's grow a garden. He's going to walk with you. He's going to talk with you. He's going to tell you that you're his own. He does not want to rule you with an iron fist. He wants to show you his grace. He wants to see fruit developed in your life. If you'll come down and plant the first seed, it's time to grow a garden. Amen.